This podcast was recorded at Grace Point Church of Orville. For more information, visit us online at orogracepoint.com. I guess we have to start with the question of why stories matter. If the series is, you know, God's big story, why are stories important for us? And I think the, the primary reason is this recognition that human life is itself story formed. That is to say, it's shaped by some story. Our lives are not abstract little bullet points, but when we think about the decisions that we make, who we are, these things are ordered and framed by our sense of how they fit into a larger story, a tradition. These stories or traditions can be national stories. They can be family stories. Some people live the way they do, act the way they do because of their nationality. Others, when you talk to them, it's all about, well, this is what my family does. What are you going to do for Christmas? Well, my family does this. So human beings are always a part of some story. And in fact, we can only really answer the question, what am I to do, if I first answer the question, in what story do I find myself? In order to appropriately respond to whatever task is at hand, whatever circumstance, I first have to think about, well, how does this fit into a larger framework? Otherwise, you just ping-pong ball around and really don't accomplish much of anything. So the first task, then, of what we might call a Christian ethic, an ethic is just, what am I supposed to do? How do I respond? How do I properly act? How do I order my life? Is not, then, to come up with a list of things to do that doesn't fully understand or comprehend the fact that humans live according to stories. So the first task in trying to understand how should I live in the world, what should I be doing, it's not to come up with a bullet point list, but it's to say, how can I properly see the world in which I live? If I properly understand the context, if I properly understand the world around me, then I can begin to make decisions about whether or not I am living in accordance with that story. And when we look at the Scripture, there's no more fundamental way to speak of God than in story. That's the primary way that the Bible communicates to us about God. Often, we have lists that we have made about God's character, God's nature, but if you look in the Scripture, the way that people came to know those things was not because God you know, just spit out pithy little statements. It's usually because we see a story about God interacting with his people, and then we come to know something about God because of that story. The God that we worship, the calling that we have as God's people, these things all come out of the story that we get about God. And it's really, really important to make sure that we tell the biblical story, not the biblical bullet points. The thing is this, it's easy to rearrange bullet points in your own order. And in fact, you see people who forget the biblical story, the big story, often end up with really warped, I would even say caricatures of God, of creation, of humanity, 
Sometimes people will quote Bible verses to prove really bizarre things. You're like, where did that come from? Well, here, look, Paul said X. Like, well, wait a minute, you got to back up and put this in the big story. You have to understand the framework here. If you see a child in a restaurant that's sitting next to its parents with a really sad look on its face sitting there, you might be tempted to imagine, well, that's not a very happy family. Well, you might not know the kid was just running totally bonkers five minutes before because he had too much sugar, and the parents had to sit him down. They do have a happy family. You're just getting a little piece. You have to put it in the big story. The big story helps you keep on track so that you don't end up with strange views of God, strange views of what God's people are doing. So my, my hope then in reviewing this story and slowing down to look at how it unfolds on the big scale is to challenge us to make sure that when we're reading the Bible for ourselves, when we're studying the Bible, when we're talking to people about the Bible, that we're keeping that big story as the proper framework. The proper framework for the Scriptures is God's story, not my story. The Bible doesn't make sense in light of my life. My life makes sense in light of the biblical story. Right? You see the difference between the two. And if we're not careful, we opt for the former. We try to make everything fit within our life. Well, this was my experience. How does that impact your life? Well, it may not impact your life. Um, my life is not the framing. I am one person among, where are we getting close to 7 billion now or something on the planet? My perspective is not the reigning paradigm. I don't have all knowledge. Newsflash, you don't have all knowledge. There are some pieces that are outside of your field of vision, and if you start trying to make everybody make sense based on how they fit into your view of the world, you're going to get into trouble really fast. You know this if you've ever been in any kind of human relationship, whether it's a spousal relationship, parent, child, friends, whatever, the moment you try or the moment you start imagining that that other person sees the world just like you, oh, friend, you're in big trouble. The only person who sees the world just like you is you. You're the only one behind your two eyeballs. Everybody else has their own eyes and they're behind those eyes. What brings it together is this understanding that God is at work on a much larger scale. So to rightly understand the world, to rightly understand God, to rightly understand ourselves, we really must attend to the biblical story. And what we're going to see over the next several weeks as we walk through this is that the story is really complicated. It's not just a single plot. There are multiple plots going on. There are all kinds of characters. There are digressions. There are people that you, you might think, oh, this is the main story, and then all of a sudden, you know, that character gets killed off. And you're like, what happened? Maybe some of your favorite authors, right? That's how you know it's a good author when you read a novel is there's all kinds of plots going on. The simple monoplot, that's what you, you know, see spot run, run spot run. That's how you learn to read. But to really get into a story, you need multiple plots, characters, stories that are going different directions, and we'll see that this is true of the Bible. The Bible's not a single little story. It's a whole bunch of narratives that have come together, 
And what we'll see is there is this discernible, overarching plot to it, but it's not a flat, simple story. The Bible, and this is a a faith claim, this is something that we believe as Christians, we believe that the Bible gives us the true story that is trustworthy. It really does give us the true story of how all this stuff makes sense. That's really probably one of the few controversial parts of what I'm saying this morning. Most people would agree humans live story-formed lives. The Bible tells stories. Where people get a little touchy is when you say, well, the Bible's telling us the true story. It's really giving us an insight into how things really operate. But if you don't believe that, then it's not going to have the authority in your life that it needs to have for Christians. For people who are not Christians, they have other stories. But for us, this is the way that you have to see the world. This is what frames it. And scriptures themselves, when you look at the Bible, it really is a story. There are other genres. We've talked about this in weeks past. But the the primary thrust of the Bible is it's telling us a story. Now, in that story, there are law codes. In that story, there's poetry. In that story, there are wisdom sayings. There are all kinds of other things happening. But the overarching narrative is story. And the reason... I'm spending today framing it in terms of story is we really have to get that. If you look around, you would be surprised at how many Christians flatten the Bible out into something other than story. The biggest one is people often try to mine the Bible for abstract, timeless truths and principles. That's really the whole point of the Bible. Well, if that was the point of the Bible, don't you think God could have just given that to us to begin with? Right? If it really is inspired by God, then we have to take into account the form that he gave it to us. And he didn't send us bullet lists. He didn't just send us you know, a, a short, condensed list of principles for life. This flattening of the Bible really belittles the Bible. It says, well, you can't just read the story and understand where you're supposed to be going. We need to lift all those layers out and boil it down to the nuts and bolts and then give that to you. Really what you're doing when you say that is you're presuming to know more than God because God thought it was just fine to give us a story. And stories are powerful. The authority of the Bible isn't because it just gives us a bunch of principles. It gives us a story that tells us how things really are. There are principles in that. There are laws in that. Of course, there are witty sayings in that. But it's more than that. When you begin to live and inhabit the story of the Bible, then you begin to understand, how am I supposed to be acting? What am I supposed to be doing? The biblical story, again, this is an important thing to note. Uh, For us, this is not just the story of a local tribe or ethnic group. But as we'll see, it begins with the creation of all things. And it orients us towards a final reality that encompasses all things. So this really is God's big story, even though certain characters will be particular individuals in time and space, particular ethnic groups. The story itself is much bigger than that. It makes claims about all of creation, about all of humanity, about all of time. And our challenge 
is not to boil down the nuts and bolts. Our challenge is to ask ourselves, where do I fit in this story? What's my role in this story? Now, when I say that the Bible is a story, I'm not suggesting that it is, again, just a single plot line. There are a couple of biblical scholars that I like their work, and I have a couple quotes here for you. There's a, a New Testament scholar, Richard Bauckham. I think he, he frames this nicely. He says, the Bible does not have a carefully plotted single storyline, like, for example, a conventional novel. It's a sprawling collection of narratives, along with much non-narrative material that stands in a variety of relationships to the narratives. Another writer, Chris Wright, said it like this, maybe a little more clearly. He says, the Bible is not just a single narrative like a river with only one channel. It is rather a complex mixture of all kinds of smaller narratives, many of them rather self-contained, with all kinds of other material embedded within them, but there is clearly a direction, a flow. So we get divergent ways in the Bible of telling the story, which we would expect. A nomad herder in ancient times is going to explain and use vocabulary and talk about God in a different way than an educated urban Jew in the New Testament. They're going to have different concerns, different vocabulary levels, but it's all part of this same larger story. One uh, more quote here from a guy by the name of uh, George Strope. He said, the stories of the Bible taken together disclose a way of seeing the world and human life in the world as always held within the plot of God's intentional purpose and direction. Life in the world is nested within that overarching narrative. There's lots of stuff that's going on. Commandments, like I said, poetry, mixes of things, but they're all helping push along this flow that is part of the Scripture. Now, flow and direction also suggest something else. right? They suggest it's building. Something's unfolding. Something's moving along, and that's going to be crucial to the way that we're going to explore this. Here's the idea Numerous people have tried to break it up into different groups. I find N.T. Wright's to be the most compelling, and so I've got somewhat of a modified version of his understanding of how to describe this. And here's the basic idea. If you think about the way that a drama, a play, a musical works, imagine that it has six acts, but you're only partway through. You've only finished the first four acts, and there are two to go. And so it's a long drama, and what you do is the first four acts have been performed. And then imagine if you go out and you find some actors, and you tell them, here's the first four acts of this play, of this drama. It's already been played out. It's already been performed. Immerse yourself in that. Figure out the plot lines. Learn the vocabulary. See the setting. Totally embed yourself, immerse yourself in those first four acts. Here's why. You have to perform number five. In some way, that's really our task. We're in the middle of a story. Part of it has been written, but part of it's still in motion. And we're not just spectators. In many ways, we are, and I think this is a fruitful way to think about us, we are fifth act people. 
So what are the acts? I put on your handout that we're going to walk through, and each week we're going to talk about one of these. There's creation, exile, Israel, the surprising victory of Jesus, living in new creation, and then the eschaton. So if you haven't noticed this, the world's already been created. You don't have to worry about that. It's a done deal. The exile's already happened. Jesus has already gone to the cross, risen victorious. Don't have to worry about that. We are in Act 5. The end of the world's not happened yet. I know some people think it has, but it's not all over. We're not in Act 6. We're in Act 5. So here are a couple of things that this would suggest to us, and we're going to come back to these as, this, as we go through this series. But if we think about the Scripture in terms of story, it's a big story. And I think drama or musical is, is helpful because you have different kinds of things that are going on, characters entering, characters exiting. In any case, if you think about there are six grand acts to this big story that God's directing, God's shepherding, God's uh, the, the one that's writing this story, there's some implications. Right? You've never been to a play where in each act they totally repeat everything from the, the previous act. Right? That wouldn't be a play. That would be some weird Groundhog Day thing. Right? So the, the actors in each stage are not supposed to repeat the previous parts of the story. They're supposed to figure out, read the script, talk to the director, make sure they understand how to carry the story forward, being sensitive to the previous story. But also with the understanding something new is supposed to happen. Right? If you think about a story, a play, a drama, maybe you're a Shakespeare fan, it would be really weird if in Act 1 they speak English and then in Act 2 all of a sudden everybody speaks Japanese. It would throw you off. Like, is this the same story? Or Act 1, you know, they're in some castle in England, and then Act 2, all of a sudden, you're with Elon Musk on Mars. You think, what happened? You know, did I went out at intermission and came, did I come back to the wrong theater? This, was, this isn't the story. But on the other hand, if the story doesn't move forward, then you're going to think, well, I already watched this. Why am I still here? There's nothing new. So the actors are not called to repeat their previous part. They're called to be sensitive to it. You can't just all of a sudden go from England to Mars. And that, that's a kind of a weird storyline. You, you have to keep some continuity here, but it should open up new vistas. There should be some new actions. There might be some new characters Maybe one of the characters will learn to speak Japanese. Right? That's not altogether outside the realm of possibility, but the whole play shouldn't just all of a sudden shift and nobody knows what's happening. The first four acts, because they already exist, they're the authority for the play. The task at hand, whatever you want to do with respect to improv or scene change, has to have some continuity with the first four acts. That's why you can't just go from England to Mars with Elon Musk. Say, no, wait a minute. And the audience would rightly object. Say, wait, this is not the setting. This is Macbeth. You've, you've jumped ship here. You've gone from one setting to the other. 
maybe somebody's doing a play about the Gettysburg Address. And in walks you know, Martin Luther King Jr. You would object. You would say, wait a minute, this is the wrong time. He's in the wrong era. He's a great guy. But he, he, this is too soon. And I love that little meme. Maybe you've seen it. It's great. It says, don't believe everything you read on the internet, Abraham Lincoln. You're like, what? There's something out of sync with the timeline here. Something's wrong. And it's not because you have a bullet list that says they're not allowed to speak Japanese. But in the flow of the story, you say that doesn't fit. The wrong time frame. You see these ancient paintings. People in the Middle Ages didn't really have a good grasp on the fact that people, say, in ancient Egypt look differently. So if you look at some of these paintings, they'll be dressed in medieval European clothes. And you say, no, actually, they didn't wear those kinds of clothes. You're dressing them like yourself, right? So you can offer critique. It's not an anything-goes story. You have four acts. That's where the authority comes to say, what's permissible when it comes to improv? Because there's going to be something new. The actors are going to be called to carry the story forward. Um, but always in continuity with these first four acts. Their authority is not that the story's over, but they're shaping how this moves forward. And the story itself has an internal movement. And if you really want to be an authentic fifth act participant, you need to know the previous storyline. I mean, think about any play that you've watched. You can't just show up in Act 5 not having read any of the first four and hope that you're going to carry this thing forward. You have to learn the language. You have to spend time with the first four acts so that you can have this balance of innovation and consistency. It has to be consistent, but it has to be fresh and new. And our challenge, and again, don't worry, we're going to come back to all of this stuff. I'm just sketching it out in broad terms today. Our challenge is to pour over the first four acts so that we can make sure to live consistently with that flow. On the other hand, we have to walk boldly in the Spirit, recognizing we can't just relive a previous act. Right? We're not going to all pack up, move to Egypt, become slaves so that we can get in the Exodus and go through the Red Sea. Just not going to work. Now, I picked a dramatic example, but if you're not careful, there is a temptation within the Christian life to just repeat previous scenes because they're comfortable. We know how they ended, but that doesn't make for a good drama. Right? It doesn't move things forward. In real life, we call these people immature. It's okay to have a great time as a 10-year-old when you're 10. And when you're 20, get a job. Well, probably need to get one before 20. In life, we call people who get stuck in that loop immature. Maybe when it comes to the story that God's telling, the label could also apply. Well, no, this worked. It was great. This is true. Yes, it's true. Your 15th birthday party, I hope it was great. I hope it was a fantastic time. But you're not 15 anymore. Now, you don't need to forget your family. You don't need to forget the things you learned as a 15-year-old. 
but you need to apply it in new times. This is not 1950, not 1900. And there were some great times. I don't think any of us were here in 1900. Maybe some of us here had some great times in 1950. That's awesome, wonderful. But we're not in 1950. This is not 2000, it's 2017. Believe it or not, halfway over. Some people love Ronald Reagan. That's great, but you know he's dead. He's not coming back. We got a new game, new chapter. And the beautiful thing is this, God is not stuck behind us somewhere. He is in front of us, constantly beckoning us into a glorious future. But we have to be willing to go into that future. We are called to be fifth act participants. Not third, not first, not second, not fourth, but fifth act. And we're not called to be spectators. We're called to be participants. That's what it means to be called into fellowship with God. Fellowship is an active process. We're called to work with God. When you look at the Scripture, how does the story unfold? In Act 1, what we're going to see is that God is the one that kicks this thing off. God's the one who creates. God's the one who sets things in motion. But then very quickly, He pulls humans into the story. And humans become his preferred vehicle of moving the story forward. Occasionally, angels will be involved. Sometimes animals. Think Balaam. Right? Every once in a while, God will pull in something else. But the primary vehicle that moves God's story form are those creatures who were called and created in his image and in his likeness. God creates humans to carry his story forward. Not to be passive observers, not to be spectators, but to live out the story. And that's how you move it forward. Imagine if you went to see Much Ado About Nothing, and the actors walked out and gave you a plot summary. You'd think, what did I just come to see? They walk out and they say, the point of this story is this. And they give you five bullet points and walk off the stage. I, I seriously doubt, unless it's a really weird audience, that the people are going to stand up and applaud for an encore. People are going to feel Jesus like, that's not a play. You just talked about it. Likewise, for us, our task is not to memorize a list about God, to get up and tell people, Here's what it means to be a Christian. No, we're called to just plunge in and live the story. That's how it moves forward. And I know for some people, there's a little bit of tension there because they think, well, maybe people won't get the point. Of course we'll get the point. Everything about humans is story-formed. If you live the story, they're going to get it. To be a good actor, your primary concern is, am I really living this story? Am I fully embodying the story? My mannerisms, my vocabulary, my thinking, my perspective, am I inside this story? That's the only way that it works. Our call is we have got to get inside the story. It's not an easy task. Something you have to practice. 
If you want to be a good performer, you really want to do well in Macbeth. You can't just read Macbeth. You've got to read more Shakespeare. You've got to read his other plays. You might need to look up what the stage looked like. What's going on? Who are these folks? Right? It's good to do a little background research on the characters, even though, of course, they're somewhat fictionalized. You, you need to know what's going on in this story. It requires effort. That's why we study the Bible, so that we can better live the story, so that we can better inhabit the character that we're called to be. Now, there are a couple of challenges that come up in this story that I want to note here before I close. Because as soon as you enter into this story, what you're going to find out is that there are other competing stories. So when I say God has a big story, we're called to inhabit that story because it's the true story of the world, of creation, of life, of God. This is absolutely true. But there are competing stories. Several of these, and I just want to note three, that God's big story explicitly refutes or comes into conflict with are these. One, idealism. The biblical story subverts this worldview that we call idealism. And idealism is just this. It's the suggestion that historical events aren't the real story. They're just pointing us to some bigger reality. That's not the Bible. The Bible is, is clear that life that we live, that's the real story. Now, is there a world to come? Yes. But that's Act 6. It doesn't mean that Act 5 is fake. Right? Some people get a little weird and they think just because there's a life to come, just because there's a spiritual realm, that that means this stuff is somehow a shadow. No, it's not a shadow. God made real human beings with skin from the beginning. It wasn't a mistake to have skin. So our ultimate goal is not to liberate our inner spirit to float off somewhere. The call is to live authentically in this life, in the historical sphere that we live. You have to pay attention to your family. You have to pay attention to the things that God puts into your hand to be a steward of. Your family, your own life, what you do with your body matters. It's not just this is just a temporary you know, thing just to, to carry my little brain through and then I can you know, float off to a disembodied thing. No, your life matters. This moment matters. Family matters. Life matters. Love matters. Pain matters. All of these things are not shadows of some other reality. That's the story you see in the Bible. This is not about idealism. It's about living in this world and seeing God's transformative power at work in this world. The second thing that it comes into immediate conflict with are the power structures of this world. In God's story, there's only one Lord. There are not multiple lords. And the Scripture, whether it's Isaiah in the Old Testament saying Babylon is not the ruler, to the New Testament and the writers saying Caesar is not the ruler, today, as we live in, the, in this story, we also are going to come into some conflict with some other powers that think they have the authority to tell us 
who we are, what our purpose in life is. Right? See, all these things that the biblical story narrates, our location, how we should interact with one another, how we should see ourselves, how we should see creation, how we should see God. There are competing narratives that would say, no, 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 I know a better way. The Bible immediately comes in conflict with these. This is why it's a particular challenge to live in the story of the Bible because we meet people all around us who are living in other stories. They may not understand what we do can cause conflict. There are other people who are pretty hostile to the way that God sees humanity. When you read God's story, you realize all humans are equal. There are no special groups. doesn't matter there are the skin color, language, ethnicity. These things do not make one person better than another. Newsflash, that conflicts with some people's stories. They don't like that. Our challenge is to remain faithful to God's story. The third thing that this pushes up against, there's a lot of conflict, it's a challenge to rival eschatologies. That's a big word. Simply means the end. There are lots of views about where things are going. God has a perspective on where things are going. The end is coming and it's going to be glorious. God's view of the end is something beautiful, something good, something amazing is unfolding in creation, in humanity. Are there bumps along the way? Yes. Is there pain along the way? Yes. Is there evil in the world? Yes. But God is ultimately aiming for something good. There are other competing stories. Some people think we are just circling the drain and it's all just going down. That's not God's story. Say, well, yeah, but read this Bible verse. That's exactly what I was talking about at the beginning. You got to get the whole picture because you can cut and paste Bible verses to prove anything you want. That's not the correct way to read the Scripture. The Scripture is not about proving me right. It challenges, as soon as I enter into the story, it challenges idealism, notion that somehow this isn't real, this isn't important. It challenges all the power structures of the world, be they political, economic, whatever. It challenges rival eschatologies. And we'll talk about this, when we, of course, when we get to the eschaton. But you're going to see from the very beginning, there's conflict about where this is going. Are all the people in the world here for my use? No. It's not where this is going. God did not create me as the pinnacle of all things. There's a story that's bigger than me. So, just to recap, humans are story formed. Just the way that we're wired. We make sense of the world based on the story that we're inhabiting. And again, that takes many forms. For some people... Everything they do is because of, well, I'm an American, so Americans do X. Other people, it's more narrow. It's they do this, well, because I'm from Texas. You haven't noticed, people from Texas don't seem like they're part of the United States, probably because California is in the United States. That's probably the number one reason Texas 
doesn't belong with us or whatever. I don't know. But some people, you know, they'll say, well, this is what people in Texas do. Other people, it's family. As I mentioned earlier, well, this is what we do. Why? Because that's what my family does. Um, there are lots of stories. Ultimately, why do we do what we do? Should be because we're in Act 5 of God's big story. That's how we remain faithful to the first four, and this is how we're carrying the story forward. So to say that Christians live according to story doesn't mean something weird. All humans live according to stories. We're just going to take some time to make it clear this is the story that we're inside of. And it will naturally lend itself to answering the question, well, what am I supposed to do? So humans are story formed. We need to understand we're in the story. We're going to think about it in six acts. We're in Act 5, but we'll start with Act 1 as we go through it and explore what does it mean to live in this story. It's not going to be an easy task, but it's a doable task. So that's the introduction. If you want to read ahead, um, I put at the bottom of the handout, uh, next, next week we're going to talk about Act 1, which is creation. I've given you a couple of uh, Bible passages there that I'll be keying in on as a way to, to launch our discussion. So if you want to uh, spend some time this week, you can read Genesis 1 and 2, uh, the first part of John's Gospel. There's a passage from Isaiah, uh, a little bit there from the book of Hebrews to kind of get your brain thinking in the right direction. All right, so that's the introduction. And like I said, if it seems like a lot, it's okay. We're going to come back to some of these things as it unfolds. Thank you for listening. Our podcasts are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. To hear more, visit us online at orogracepoint.com.